0: Hello there, our curious listeners. Jennifer here with another bonus episode, a recording of our recent live show on Fireside, which is the interactive storytelling app. In this conversation, which I enjoyed earlier this month, I spoke with Jennifer Higgy, an Australian writer who lives in London. Higgy is the former editor of Freeze Magazine, and her latest book is called The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution, and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits. This book is amazing and right up my personal art historical alley, and I think it will also be up the alley of a lot of Art Curious listeners. So please enjoy this lovely conversation today with me and Jennifer Higgy. In the show notes and blog post for today's episode, I will also include a link to order Jennifer's book because it will make a great present for the holidays. And remember, join us on a future episode of Art Curious Live on Fireside. The next live recording will be on December 2nd at 12 p.m. Eastern, when I'll be speaking with the wonderful historical novelist and art historian Laura Morelli. So join me next time live by registering today for a free Fireside account. You can use my link, firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And now, on with the show. Good morning, everybody. This is Jennifer Dassel here. I am hosting Art Curious Live. And for anyone who's in our audience and has not yet heard about me, I am the host and the creator of the Art Curious podcast, which explores what I like to call the unexpected, slightly odd and strangely wonderful in art history. And on this live version on Fireside, what I like to do is give little bonus content to listeners that I will then release also on the podcast as well, that provides some deeper context and insight two great things in art history that are going on, especially talking to authors, curators, and art historians. And I am so pleased to be joined here this morning
1: by Jennifer Higgy. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's great to be here. Two Jennifers. I know.
0: I, I have to tell our listeners, it was so fun when we were putting this interview together that we had not only you and I, both Jennifers, but also your PR rep, who was also a Jennifer, Jenny. And so it was like all the stars were aligning, three Jennifers taking over the world. <laughs> It was so much fun. So before we begin, I just want to give a little bit of an introduction to to who you are, and then I'm so excited to talk about your new book. So Jennifer Higgy is an Australian writer who lives in London. She is previously the editor of Freeze Magazine, and she's also written a novel and children's books and various nonfiction books. The latest book, which we are here to talk about today, is The Mirror and the Palette. Jennifer, again, thank you so much for being with me today on Art Curious. I love your book. The moment that the other Jennifer, Jenny, first told me about it, it was like it spoke directly to my heart because this is pretty much my favorite subject in the entire world, is talking about women, in particular women artists. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. What was the inspiration for you for for putting this down on paper?
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Jennifer. That's a lovely introduction. Well, the book really came about because... I went to art school in Australia in the 80s and 90s, and it was a great education, except for one thing, which was that the story of women in art was pretty much excluded from our art history lessons. We learned about a lot of feminist artists working in the 70s and 80s, but and of course we knew about indigenous women in Australia who were a great creative powers within their communities and have been for thousands of years. But in terms of women in the Western tradition, in the European tradition, it took me a very long time before I discovered that, say, There were incredible women artists working in the Renaissance, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. In early 20th century, there were some brilliant women who were involved in the avant-garde. And in terms of how traditional art history was taught, it was a story of white male achievement. It wasn't one in which people of color or women or people with disabilities were included in that story. And so a few years ago, I started an Instagram account and I decided to just set myself a little challenge of trying to honor a woman artist from the past who had been born on every day of the year. And it was incredible because it was quite difficult to find someone for every day of the year. But once I did start finding these women, it was like the floodgates opened and I was astonished with how many women in the past were making really amazingly good art and interesting art and relevant art. And so my book really came from that because I thought often when women were excluded from, they weren't allowed to go to art school or go to life classes. And so often they turned to themselves as subjects. And so there are a lot of historic self-portraits. So I decided to focus the mirror and the palette on 500 years of women's self-portraits to, in a sense, honor what these women have achieved.
0: I absolutely love that. I think one of the things that I really loved about your book is that even for someone like me, who is an an art historian by training, and also I was a museum curator for 13 years, there were still artists who were new to me. So I really loved that I was able to learn about Nora Haysen, for example, and Mary Beale. I didn't know anything about her. Was that something that was an interesting challenge to you once you started that Instagram account? Were there so many artists that were surprising to you that you were able to find? Oh my goodness,
1: absolutely. Most of them were surprising to me. So in a way, this whole project has been as much about educating myself as educating other people. And I, I definitely, you know, it's not an encyclopedic book and my knowledge definitely isn't encyclopedic. I mean, it has great gaps in knowledge, for example, for women making art on the African continent, for example. I feel like I have a huge amount to learn, and also women in Asia. But in terms of my own learning and my own background, I I thought it was really important to sort of honor a cross section of women. So I chose 22 women over 13 different countries, including Australia. Of course, I'm Australian, and, and New Zealand, and America, and India, lots of European countries. And I just really wanted to look at how the European tradition really had been manifested in their imaginations and then turned into these pictures. So, for example, for a woman in India or a woman in Australia, how did she use the European tradition of painting in terms of translating the world around her and herself? How did you narrow down
0: your incredible list, setting yourself that goal of having an Instagram post for every single day mm. of the year for every single artist? How did you choose to narrow that down to 22? What, yeah. did you have a,
1: well, a particular uh, way to go about it? I, I think I was just in a, in many ways just guided by my instinct and my tastes and what i found interesting i didn't want i didn't want a sort of consensus of approaches i didn't want all of them to have the same politics or the same approach or the same style you know that would be impossible over 500 years so mm-hmm. i wanted a really rich cross section of women who had very different approaches were painting for de- very different reasons were very different politically were very different in terms of the class and the kind of training they had but so I thought that a good starting point would be 1548, which is when this young woman, Katerina van Hemmerson, sat down at her easel in Antwerp and she decided to paint a self-portrait. And what is really radical about this self-portrait, even though it's a very small, quite a modest looking picture, she pictures herself seated at the easel. It is the first painting we know of in, in art history of an artist of any gender representing themselves at work. And so I thought that would be a great point to start. And then I go right through to 1980 with um, Alice Neal and her brilliant The American brilliant American artist, of course, who paints herself naked at the age of 80, seated in her chair, holding her paintbrushes. And I thought it would be a good point to stop there, because I think once you start getting into the digital age and the age of the selfie, that's an entirely different thing altogether. And I wanted to concentrate on painting as well.
0: Yes. I wanted to ask you actually about that. That was something that you mentioned in your prologue a little bit is how interesting it is to be writing a book about women in the past who are painting self-portraits in the age of the selfie when we are so surrounded Mm -hmm. at all points with images of women, especially young women, in all of these different manifestations. That is a really interesting concept. I would love for you to talk about that idea.
1: Yeah, it was something that I had to keep reminding myself, like when you're, say, looking at Katerina Van Hemmerson's self-portrait when she's 20, imagine coming up with an idea when you have no political agency, you've been barred from pretty much everything. There's literally been no precedent. There have been no paintings that we know of that show a, that are a self-portrait of someone painting themselves. She sits down and she decides to do this. I mean, the mind boggles because we've become so used to this idea of selfies or self-portraits using our cameras, which literally take a second. We can delete them if we we don't like them. We forward them to each other. You know, we we try and look good in them and make sure we don't have a double chin or glossy skin. You know, so <laughs> yes. you know, it's, it's this. You know, the idea of painting yourself, even at a time when, for example, the mirror is a luxury item, hardly anyone had mirrors. You had to be really rich basically until the mid 19th century to own a mirror. And so this idea of self scrutiny in the digital age it's so quick and it takes so little. It's become in many ways banal. Of course, there are some interesting self portraits being done now, but it's just so quick and throwaway and often is to do with a kind of a vanity or just showing yourself on holiday or there's not a lot of heft to it. And yes. so the idea of these self-portraits at a time when women have been barred from representation in, in so many ways, it was a really radical gesture. And I found that very moving, actually, and very inspiring.
0: That was something that I also loved that was one of the first sentences that really struck me again in your prologue was when you said, a self-portrait is never one thing. Mm. And I loved that because I think on the surface, It feels, at least to some modern audiences like me, sometimes it's just like it is that paint, I guess, the paint equivalent of that selfie. Mm -hmm. This is an image of what I look like. Here I am at this given point in my life. But you are right. It is so much more than that. What for Mm -hmm. women in particular were these little messages more than just showing themselves what they were trying to portray besides their appearance? What else were they trying to put out into the world?
1: Yeah, it's so interesting looking at how coded, especially um, the first few hundred years from the 16th century onwards, how coded many of these women's self portraits are. Because at a time when women, I'm sorry, I'm being repeating, I keep repeating how excluded they were, but it, it's so important. It's true, to, though. <laughs> yeah, they're so excluded that in a way to be an artist and to be a woman artist, you know, they could have easily had their reputations ruined. You know, they're dependent on men for financial, moral, and emotional support. And so if they're not considered virtuous women, for example, this could really um, have terrible repercussions. So often in the early self-portraits, the women are very insistent on on their religiosity. So they often depict themselves, for example, painting a picture of the Virgin Mary. And they often even declare that they themselves are virgins in the inscriptions that they write on the paintings so that they're not seen as some sort of wild, depraved bohemian. And also in the Renaissance, it was a time when paintings are very coded in what were called alleg- allegories. And these, there were big dictionaries of allegories that each artist would have that would be, so painting, for example, would be represented by a woman with dark, messy hair who had a necklace around her neck with a skull on it. And there were certain codes that you would follow if you wanted to convey a certain message. And so you get great Baroque artists, for example, like Artemisia Gentileschi, who depicts herself as the embodiment of painting. So she's both following the rule book of that an allegory is depicted by a woman with tousled hair and a necklace, but she's also painting a self-portrait so she's saying i am such a brilliant artist i am the embodiment of painting as well as being a woman who is simply working and she was an extraordinary artist and she certainly wasn't backward in coming forward you could say
0: and talking about those coded messages there was something mm. that i really loved that i didn't quite consider even though i'm a big fan of this artist Sofonisba Anguissola. Mm. yeah i Love her work, but I hadn't really considered the fact that she doesn't show herself holding a maul stick, that traditional
1: mm, implement that yeah. many
0: artists use to, you know, stable their hands while they're doing very intricate details. And I loved that because you made me think about her skill and her presenting her skills so forthrightly. Could you speak about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the paintings you're referring to is her self-portrait with her teacher, Bernardino Campanini. And um, it's a remarkably audacious and actually quite witty self-portrait. It's in the Pinacoteca in in, uh, Siena. And she depicts herself as the subject of a painting that her former teacher is painting. So it's a portrait of a man painting a portrait of a woman who is herself but she has painted it and she depicts him holding a mile stick. So this long stick that many Renaissance artists and later would use to rest their hand on when they were doing delicate areas. And she depicts him with a mile stick. And in the portrait he he is supposedly painting of her, she actually is much bigger than him and she looms above him. And of course, she's not holding a mile stick. And so it's this very audacious self-portrait where she is, in a sense, showing that she can not only paint herself, but she can paint her teacher, painting her, and she is looming over him as if she is a greater talent, which she was. So it's an incredibly bold and amusing self-portrait for a 16th century woman. I love it.
0: <laughs> I absolutely agree. It's just so wonderful when you start mm. digging into those layers. Mm. How really did is. artists like sophonisba learn to paint? Because this is a period where very famously mm. they were unable to join art academies and in many places were not able to have traditional art uh, assistantships, apprenticeships. How did they learn? How did they go about becoming artists?
1: It's a recurring story that, especially in the Renaissance and later, that many of the women, I'd say a vast majority of the women, who became artists were born into families of artists, and Mm -hmm. in particular their fathers. And we have those fathers to thank, really, for allowing their daughters into the studio. And often the fathers themselves trained these artists. And otherwise they wouldn't have had any access to a studio. Studio. Although Sophonis Anguissola actually is a rare exception, she was born into a minor a noble family in Cremona in northern Italy. And there were actually five daughters in her family. Three other of her sisters became artists as well. And her father, by all accounts, he was quite a character. <laughs> and although he wasn't an artist, he was very interested in art and very supportive of art. And he learned from early on because aristocratic woman women would have, as a matter of course, learned to say make watercolors, for example. It would have just been what the young lady learned to do and possibly play a musical instrument and learn how to converse with people in, in party situations. It was all part of learning to be a young woman. And so Sophonisba's father learnt that his daughter and her sisters were all very gifted in the art of painting. And so he very unusually sent two of them, Sophonisba and one of her sisters, off to live with a painter to learn the trade, which was extremely unusual for the time. But what was also interesting was that he was quite broke and he saw in his daughters, possibly, a way of earning money. Because in the Renaissance, if a woman was talented, she was known as a marvel. Um, so around the <laughs> brain it was considered so extraordinary if a young woman could paint that she was a marvel of nature, and so he had a few of these marvels, and so in many ways he could be considered the first dealer in self-portraits because she became the greatest self-portraitist, most prolific self-portraitist between Durer and Rembrandt, yes. and. Uh, so he was selling them like hotcakes and she, you know, Vasari, the great Renaissance art historian, he wrote about Sofa in the second edition of his Lives of the Artists in 1568. He also actually wrote about 13 other women. So much more than 20th century art historians were writing about women in the early half of the century. But yeah, so he, so it was Sophonis' father, really, who totally encouraged his daughters. And Sophonis being probably, it's most likely she studied with Michelangelo because her father wrote to Michelangelo and made an introduction Um and then it's possibly through Michelangelo that she ended up working uh, for the court of Philip II in Spain, and she became a renowned portraitist in Spain. And she had a life of great adventure. I mean, there are so many stories about Sofonisba. I really want, like, the Netflix series. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that idea. Oh, I would yeah. I would gobble that right up. So yeah, sorry, anybody too. who's in Netflix in filmmaking in general, please take notes. I yeah. would absolutely love that. <laughs> Real quick, though, though you were talking about Vasari and talking about how people yeah. like Vasari were noting and writing about these marvelous women, these marvels. Yeah. But then for so much, you mentioned that when you were in art school, you were learning about artists, that mm-hmm. it was sort of you weren't knowing much about women from the Renaissance who were painters or really no. prior to the 20th century. What happened? Because I know in a lot of cases, some very famous women like Sofonisba, like Artemisia Gentileschi fell mm. by the wayside, like Judith Leister, Le- oh, I suppose yeah, you could yeah. say. How? What happened over these centuries that have caused women to fall by the wayside? And also, what was the impetus for us being able to, quote unquote, rediscover them, I suppose mm. you could say?
1: Well, you know, this is the big question. And I think that the fundamental answer is, you know, our culture is a patriarchal one. And it's only very recently that women have been able to get the vote. I mean, it's amazing to think that, say, even in France, women didn't get the vote till 1944, oh, and in Switzerland till the 1970s. The idea of emancipation for women is a very recent one and a very modern one. And despite the fact that women were, some women did have successful careers in art before the 20th century, it was not really in what would have been perceived as society's benefit to encourage these women. Because if women started going to studios and making paint and stop looking after their husbands and looking after their children, you know all hell would uh, break loose. That was the assumption. Mm-hmm. And because many of them too didn't sign their paintings, which is so frustrating, there is going to be so many pictures by women hiding in, in museums in plain sight that have been attributed to men, that soon after many of these artists died, things just went back to normal, which was the patriarchal structures of supporting male creativity. And so unless you had a very vigilant art historian who was really going to take note of these women and really make sure they're included in the history books, the scholarship fell aside and the story of art once again became a story of white men. But it, it is interesting, though. There are many books throughout the last 400 years that actually do mention women artists. But when we get to the 20th century, we've got the two main art history textbooks by Gombrich and Jansen, which came out in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And in both of them, their books were called The, the Story of Art or The History of Art. In both of these major textbooks that I was given to when I was at art school, there is not one woman artist mention in either of these books. And then when Kenneth Clark did his very famous book on the nude, again in the 1950s, despite the fact that women had been making work for hundreds of years and had often painted nudes, especially in in the 20th century, again, he did not mention one woman artist. In the index, if you look it up, woman, under woman, it's like crouching, virgin, you know, alabrioles. You know, woman is always a symbol. She's always represents something other than herself. And it's, yeah, it's a huge question. And this was the question that Linda Nochlin in her very famous 1971 essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, which was an ironic title, was (laughs) what she she tried to answer. And that text that was published in Art News in 1971 has become a touchstone for a lot of feminist art historians. Absolutely. Um,
0: There's more to my conversation with Jennifer Higgy that you won't want to miss. So come right back after this message. I don't know about you, but the last year or so has left me feeling a little bit more of a pain in the neck, literally. I'm sore all the time, and if there's something that I've learned in the past year, it's that I also deserve a little break and to feel good, because taking care of myself and my health is one of the most important things, and that's why you've got to check out Homedics. They have a whole line of massage products, from a massage gun with a built-in hot and cold technology, to a massage cushion that lets you lie down or sit up, depending on on your therapeutic needs to a 3 and one foot massager with vibrations so powerful that it also loosens the muscles in your leg and lower back. Moral of the story, Home Medics has massagers that address your pain points from head to toe. I had the great privilege of testing out both their massage cushion and their foot massager, and let me tell you, they are both life-changing and so popular in my household that I practically have to fight my husband and son to use them. They are fantastic, and my neck really is feeling better and better. Join the millions of customers who trust the home medics family to take care of their family. So whether you're dealing with chronic pain or just looking to help out your muscles recover after a big workout, we've got good news. Right now, if you go to homeedics.com/art and use promo code ART, you'll receive a free portable phone sanitizer when you spend $100 or more in massage products. That's H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S art and use the promo code art for your free portable phone sanitizer with a $100 massager purchase. All your loved ones really want for the holidays is to see you. If schedules or distance or pandemics get in the way of getting together, make their wish come true with an Aura Smart Frame. Thoughtfully crafted and easy to set up, an AuraFrame keeps you close to the people who matter most, making it easy to share photos and now video too from anywhere in the world using the Aura app. No wonder Oprah added it to her favorite things for a third year in 2021. It's also Wirecutter's number one pick in digital picture frames and has been highlighted in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and more. Beautifully wrapped and ready to gift, any Aura frame can be personalized with cherished memories and delivered right to their door for an easy, last-minute gift that will warm their heart and help you stay connected all year long with unlimited photo and video storage. My Aura frame is currently in the mail, and I am so, so, excited to get it into my living room where i can load it with all my favorite photos and invite my friends and family to share their favorites too and i know that once i get hold of it i'm going to want to gift it to all of my loved ones too last year aura frames completely sold out for the holiday season so don't wait and get yours at a discount while supplies last Visit Aura Frames and get gifting now. That's a u r a frames dot com. Listeners, use code Art Curious to get up to thirty dollars off while supplies last. Auraframes dot com promo code Art Curious. I wanted to talk a little bit about the feminine sensibility, or just the feeling that a work of art has a gender in some ways. That a style of painting is considered either feminine or masculine and how that has maybe held some women back over time. Could you speak about that idea of the feminine yeah, sensibility? I
1: mean, I think that the more you look into it, I think that the idea of a feminine sensibility in the same way a masculine sensibility would be ridiculous to be generalized about in terms of if you look at all the different paintings made over the centuries. A feminine sensibility is... Sort of meaningless in a way, because I think that every picture painted by a woman is going to be different. And every picture or sculpture is going to represent a different kind of sensibility, because as we know, every woman is different. And Vasari, although he included, say, 15, oh, sorry, 13 women in the second edition of Lives of the Artists, he, even though he was supporting of women artists, he still talked about the fragility of women artists and their tender hands so small and white, yes. you know. So it's these ridiculous reductions about what a woman is and what she can be. You know, I think, I think terms like feminine sensibility, I think we have to get rid of them because there are gender is too complicated to reduce us to one gesture or, or one kind of mood or atmosphere or touch. So uh, yeah, let's get rid of it.
0: I totally agree. I back you up. I will sign that petition. No, I think it's really interesting. I spoke a few weeks ago with another author, Molly Peacocks, who just wrote a recent book called Flower Diary about mm-hmm. a Canadian-American artist named Mary Hester reed And there was a lot of the same kind of questioning about how she found her most success in doing florals and botanical mm-hmm. paintings. And this question is that, is that something that women were more apt to do? because Mm. they could study the still life a little bit better. They had more access to beautiful things like flowers. And I think it's such a really interesting, but also such a derivative and reductive way to go about things that women wouldn't be seen as being people who could create these incredible history paintings or mythological scenes when we know very well that wasn't true. You have a whole chapter about allegory Mm. in your book. I think that's really fascinating. I want to jump ahead in time just a little bit because a lot of the questions that also I find to be at the center of your book is talking about how we need to move forward now in art history. What do we still need to do as far as art historians and curators, art critics and writers? What work still needs to be done so that we can highlight the achievements of women, especially women in the past?
1: Well I think it's really important to see art history as a work in progress that it's not yes. something that is carved in stone that is static and these decisions were made 100 years ago and therefore we must stick to them forever. Mm-hmm. You know with I think we're in a very exciting time because now we see art history our true art history as something that is much more reflective of the world's population. We know that there were brilliant women making art. We know of course that there were brilliant people of color making art. We know that there are people of different abilities who made extraordinary art. The idea of that art should be one thing and a limited thing at that is it's a sad way of looking at the legacy of all these extraordinary artists and many feminist art historians have been doing some brilliant work over the last hundred years or so but there's also this idea is now entering into the mainstream which i think is Mm -hmm. so important i think that now museums are really proactively putting on exhibitions devoted to overlooked women artists Mm -hmm. Um, art historians are now looking at a more inclusive history of art and I think there is still a lot of work to be done. I did an essay earlier this year looking at the, the statistics published by the Freelance Foundation here in London on literally just the facts and figures of women's representation in art. And still most commercial galleries show a lot more women than men, even yes. though... More women than men graduate from art schools, and I think that really has to be changed. And I think historic museums, uh, some museums, for example, selling off, say, one major work by a male artist and then buying a lot more work with that money of artists who have been excluded from the canon. And I think that's a really exciting and good thing to do because when we walk around museums, we want to see – everyone wants to see themselves – represented in that space it shouldn't just be a space where you know one small group on the earth is represented and i think very exciting things are happening for example here in in london when there was a rehang of tate modern in 2016 the then new director francis morris did a very radical and wonderful thing it was the first time probably in the history of the world that a museum a major museum had a 50% hang of women on the walls. And I remember walking around the museum and going, oh my God, all these women I had literally never heard of. And they weren't just European women either. Um, You know, they were from all over. And this idea of the history of art representing the history of the world in all its messy glory, I think that's a wonderful thing.
0: I absolutely adore that. I knew that the Tate Modern rehang was wonderful. I didn't realize Mm. that the number of women artists... Mm. Represented was so high that is truly amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm floored. Speaking <laughs> about women who were working in the European tradition that you were alluding mm-hmm. to earlier, but also not necessarily from Europe, one yeah. of the people I love that you highlighted that was just such a pleasure to read about is someone I knew just very little about. I knew her name, I knew her work, but it was nice mm-hmm. to be able to dig into it a little bit deeper. Is Amrita Sher Gill? Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about her? I thought her story is so interesting. I love her work.
1: An amazingly interesting story and a tragic one, but one of great creativity, too. Um, So um, Rita Sher-Gill was born in the early 20th century to a Hungarian opera singer mother and an Indian father. And she grew up in, in quite a lot of luxury in, in in between India and Hungary. And then she was very gifted as an artist from a very early age. And actually, one of her uncles, who was an artist, re- really recognized her talent. And so she decided when she was only 16, she wanted to go to Paris. And this was in the 1920s to study art. And she went and her whole family decamped with her. They were very supportive and had the means to do so. And so in Paris, it was really interesting. She came from an Indian tradition, but she learned about modernism essentially but she was she took a very interesting sort of angle on things um you know in the 1920s she could have been getting interested in say surrealism but she was really interested in say what Picasso and Gauguin were doing and she was very interested in particular in Gauguin's portrayals of Tahitian and Polynesian women in his paintings and so she did a very radical self portrait of herself semi-naked self-portrait as a Tahitian woman and she was in a sense I think in that painting reclaiming the idea of the other, of people of color, as someone anonymous and portrayed by male white artists. And so she, as a person of color herself, is portraying herself as one of Gauguin's subjects, but she is painting her own features. And so it's a way, in a sense, to my mind, of reclaiming art history and saying that I am part of this story and I am a creative woman. And she ended up moving back to India. And she she painted a huge range of fascinating self-portraits in in Paris. And she was almost like an early Cindy Sherman. You know, she painted herself as a, a young Parisian cocotte, obviously as a subject in a Gauguin painting. She painted herself as a young Indian woman. She painted herself as a radical sort of, artist and as a demure young polite woman of society and it was as if she was trying on all of these different identities and then when she gets back to India she decides to only wear a sari from then on and she just threw herself into her art absorbing local traditions and working in it with a sort of fusion of um, Indian traditional art with some aspects of European modernism and she created something very unique and and very original and um, very tragic. She died in her in her twenties, possibly from a botched abortion, which is oh. a great tragedy um, but she in her in her brief life, she blazed brightly, and she was an extraordinary and a brilliant young artist, yeah, so I was very happy to honor her
0: I love her story, and she was definitely one of the artists whose work and life and just manner of being really mm-hmm. spoke to me while mm-hmm. I was reading your book. Is there right. an artist or one story who met more to you when you were writing this book? Was there somebody who you were drawn to their work and their life more than others?
1: I loved them all. Mm I was so invested in their lives, and I found them all so fascinating. But I think that possibly one of the artists who I particularly fell in love with was Paula Modison Becker, um, a German artist who was just extraordinary. Um, Born in the late 19th century, She was married and was part of an artist community in Germany called Ein Wurzbieder. And she became very good friends. Her best friend, Clara Westhoff, who was a sculptor, married the poet Rilke. She moved to Paris and she and Clara lived together. And she painted an extraordinary amount of really radical self-portraits. In the early 20th century, she was making pictures that were as good as Picasso or Matisse, I think. And again, because she didn't have much money, she didn't have a lot of agency, she often painted herself. And she's credited with painting the first um, Soul Portrait Naked In art history as as a woman. And it's a very curious and interesting portrait, actually. It's called Self-Portrait on My Sixth Wedding Anniversary. And she depicts herself with a swelling belly as if she's pregnant. She's topless. She has a little row of beads around her neck. She looks powerful, sturdy, strong. She looks at us with a very direct expression. But actually, she wasn't pregnant at this point in time. She'd actually just left her husband and she was trying to strike out on her own. And so to my mind, she's almost portraying herself as a symbolic pregnancy, as if she's pregnant with possibility and creative fury and her own freedom and she was just read her letters because they're absolutely wonderful she was a wonderful letter writer and they're just so full of life and love and excitement she left behind when she died again very early age in her early 30s she actually was forced to go back to her husband because she was too broke she economic circumstance forced her back she and she very tragically died after giving birth to her daughter matilda when she was only 32 but she only had two two exhibitions in her life the first one was torn apart part by a male critic and the second one no one noticed it and she didn't sell anything I think she sold something like three pictures in her lifetime but her creativity just absolutely blazed through her and and she was just a force of nature and she was full of joy and she was so brilliant and she didn't let anything bring her down and um, I particularly fell in love with her and actually Rilke when she died he was devastated and he wrote an extraordinary elegy to his his dear friend and I recommend you look that up and read it it's very moving and beautiful
0: I love that. No, she seems like such a, a role model in mm-hmm. so many ways, which I really love for somebody who's fiercely independent, mm-hmm. but also living so uh, joyously, as you were mentioning, mm-hmm. and very creatively as well. Yeah, I want to go back a little bit to what we were speaking about with art history needing to be rewritten to be a little mm-hmm. more inclusive. As I, I just recently left a career as a uh, museum curator, I'm still independently curating on the Mm. side. But that was definitely something that we've been talking so much about is trying to figure out ways to reassess works that have been left out of Mm. the traditional art historical canon and so forth. But there has been so much discussion over the last few years about this sensation for good or for bad of this idea of ghettoization. So Mm. is it okay, in your opinion, this is something that I very much have struggled with. Mm. Is it okay to have a show that centers specifically around women artists? Is it okay to have a show of Asian artists, or black artists, or, mm. you know, just Australian artists. Mm. Is it okay to have those kind of shows, if it brings more attention to these people we might not have known about necessarily? Or is that something that could be seen as being destructive in some ways?
1: No, you know, I think until things are equal, I think these um, big exhibitions that focus on the exclusions of art history are really necessary, as long as they're done sensitively and if they're well curated and, and put together. I mean, I'm just thinking, for example, just in the last year, three, oh, two years, at the National um, Gallery of Australia, there's been a massive 2 art exhibition called Know My Name, 100 Years of Australian Art. And this has really shone the focus on the importance of women to the story of Australia. art right through from 100 years ago to now, including Indigenous artists, um, artists who have previously never been shown in the National Gallery before. And this is an absolutely eye-opening and important exhibition, an exhibition that just closed at the Pompidou in Paris and is going to the Guggenheim in Bilbao, is Women in Abstraction, an extraordinary exhibition, an amazing catalogue, by the way, as has Know My Name, Women in Abstraction. You know, that was always a story of the big male abstract artists you know women hardly got a look in. And looking at the catalogue of that show, Women in Extraction, is absolutely mind-blowing. Like seeing the extraordinary artists who've been left out of this story. And a few years ago too, the Pompidou also devoted a two-year exhibition to highlighting the women artists in their collections. And I think that this is happening more and more. And as long as the shows are done in an intelligent way, I think that it's really important to highlight these overlooked stories. And, you know, they're, they're fascinating. You walk around go why wasn't I taught about her or her or her you know so yeah oh
0: I can't get enough of it and as soon as I start traveling more again that's going to be one of the first things I do on my list is just plan out all exhibitions especially of women artists that I really want to see I'm not sure if it's still happening but one of my favorite artists is Rosa Bonheur And I thought I heard a couple of years ago before the pandemic that the Mm -hmm. Vise d'Orsay is going to have a a show of her works, but I haven't been able to find anything recently on their website.
1: Right, yeah. No, so definitely
0: on my list. Fingers crossed. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything crossed. Exactly. (laughs) Before we end today, if it's all right with you, I would love to do just a couple of fun lightning round questions. Sure. Okay, so here we go. What is your favorite artist besides the artist that you have profiled in your book if you had to choose one from any time period?
1: Oh, my God. Okay. This probably changes every single day. Absolutely. Today, I'm going to choose the extraordinary Australian Indigenous artist Emily Kame kungwari incredible desert painter.
0: Oh, I'm going to have to look her up. I don't know anything about her. What is your recent favorite book that you've read?
1: I've got in front of me a really amazing book called World Receivers Georgiana Houghton, Hilma F. Clint, and Hema Kuntz. And it's about three incredible artists who use themselves as a, they channeled spirits to make their artwork. And uh, they, the work that they make is extraordinary. And I'm very fascinated about these processes.
0: I love that book. I've read it myself. In my oh. chapter <laughs> of my recent book that came out last year, I wrote about Georgiana Houghton and Hilma F. Clint. was oh, a wonderful my one.
1: And, I will be reading that. Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's just one small chapter, but it was a lot of fun. I love that subject. What is your favorite period in history?
1: Um, okay, again, probably this changes all the time, but I, <laughs> if I could time travel today, I would love to go to Switzerland in 1916 to the opening of Cabaret Voltaire with the launch of Dada, oh, the extraordinary movement that used humor and performance and satire to make people laugh and also to make a very serious point that the women that the work the world we live in is driven by militarism and terrible many terrible things and they were trying to upturn those sort of conventions to create a new more creative more democratic world so i loved dada
0: I do too, and that is a fantastic answer. I might have to crimp from you sometime when I, if actually, anybody asks me that.
1: <laughs> actually, speaking of which, Dada, today is the birthday of the brilliant German artist Hannah Höch, who was a brilliant. Oh wow! Artist. Yes, so that
0: I did my... not know that. I love that. <laughs> I, see, this is probably something that's wonderful about your Instagram is that we can check all those dates off. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe your writing style in three words?
1: Um, well, I'm very. Uh, three words
0: cut, I know cut, it's, cut. it's hard,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cut, 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 that's what I'd say <laughs>
0: that's perfect, I love it, okay, last one, what is your hidden talent?
1: um when I was younger, I used to break in horses, although I don't like that term breaking in i I could train them, I yeah, I would that. train un previously untrained horses, yeah,
0: that is fantastic, <laughs> sounds like you've had just such a wonderful, you know colorful life in and of itself, which is amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I want to remind our listeners if they're who are joining us live right now, if you haven't noticed already in the little fortune cookie icon, you can see a link where you can buy Jennifer's book. So again, we've been here today talking about The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution, and Resilience. 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits. Jennifer, I adored. This book has made me so happy and I highly recommend that everybody can pick up a copy if they are able. It is so wonderful and I am very thankful that you were here to join me today on Fireside. side. Thank you so much.
1: Jennifer, thank you so much for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I really appreciate it.
0: Me too. Thank you again. And thank you to everybody joining us here today. Again, you. if you'd like to learn more about Jennifer's book, you can also find more on her website and that's Jenniferhiggy.com. And also find Art Curious wherever you find your podcast. That's Art Curious, which is one word, A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. And hopefully we will be back soon to talk about more great stories of the unexpected, slightly odd and strange. Strangely wonderful in art history. So, again, Jennifer, thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Take care. Yes, you too. Bye. Bye bye.
0: Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this bonus episode recorded live on Fireside. Again, join me next time. Remember, that's December 2nd at 12 p.m. Eastern for Laura Morelli. And watch our social media announcements for other upcoming live shows. And then send me your questions. Any questions about all things art, art history, and Art Curious in advance at Jennifer at ArtCuriousPodcast.com. Or, again, join us and share them live on Fireside. Register today for a free Fireside account with my link firesidechat.com slash Jennifer Dassel. And Dassel is spelled D-A-S-A-L. See you soon on Fireside and see you back here next week for a new episode of Art Curious.